morning. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and Romans chapter 8. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The Lord God formed the man to dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good of evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The word of the Lord. We just began a series in which we're looking at some of the most controversial topics in our culture, things like marriage, sexuality, transgender identities, abortion, and things like that. And as I mentioned last week, um, as we enter into these conversations, I have four big goals for us. One goal is that we just slow down. Our culture tends to assume that we can express incredibly complex things in a tweet or a meme. And one of the main things I want to do is slow down the conversation and create space for the complexity. Second, uh, we do want to listen to what the Bible says, but we also want to show respect for the many other viewpoints in our culture. That doesn't mean we're always going to agree, but we do want to listen well and interact graciously with other viewpoints. Third, we want to be sensitive to the grief, hurt, trauma, and shame that are a part of many people's stories. Because these are not just abstract topics. These um, conversations touch the most intimate and vulnerable parts of our lives. And we want to be sensitive to that. But lastly, one of the things that connects all of these topics is an often overlooked reality. We are embodied creatures. We want to take that embodiedness into account. So last week when we began the series, uh, the first thing we did was we looked at the different kinds of faith assumptions we all bring to these conversations. The big idea is that we all have unprovable assumptions about the way things really are. And if we're not clear about our assumptions, we can't have clear conversations. This week, 
we want to look at the body. After all, this series is called Embodied. Many people believe different things about the body, but I think it's fair to say that there are two big stories in our culture about the body. One story says that physical material reality is all there is. There is no God, no soul, no spiritual reality. There is only physical material reality. The other big story in our culture could be expressed like this. Maybe you've heard this saying, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Granted, this could be interpreted different ways, but the way I hear this most commonly interpreted is that, yes, we have a body and a soul, but our bodies are temporary. And one day we're going to escape the body and be liberated into a purely spiritual existence. Friends, these are two of the biggest stories in our culture. But when we look at what the Bible has to say, we find something radically different. And when we understand what the Bible is saying, it it really has a, a radical change in the way we engage all the rest of these conversations. So let's take a look at the body this morning under three headings. We're going to see the nature of the body, the problem of the body, and the redemption of the body. Okay? The nature, the problem, and the redemption of the body. First, let's look at the nature of the body. Um, At the very beginning of Genesis 1, it tells us about who we are as human beings. It says, so God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The most fundamental truth about us as human beings is that we are created in the image of God. People ask, what does that mean? We'll actually talk more about that next week when we talk about identity. But here's the big thing for us to notice this week. Whatever it means to be created in the image of God, um, our bodies are a crucial part of that. So look again at this verse. The very first phrase says, God created humankind in his own image. That's the main idea. But then the next two lines are basically saying the same thing, but giving us more detail. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. One of the most important things about what it means to be created in the image of God is that we are created male and female. This is talking about our bodies. And we can see that in the very next verse because God tells the first humans to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, this is talking about um, our bodies as, as it reflects our biological um, sex differences, male and female. And I understand that as soon as I say that, maybe some of you are thinking, oof, where's he going with this? Listen, we're not talking about gender yet. But at this point, it's probably helpful to at least start getting familiar with some of the categories. Sex is referring to basic biological realities, things like the presence or absence of a Y chromosome, or internal reproductive systems, or external sexual anatomy, basic biological textbook stuff. Now, by the way, we will talk about intersex later in this series, but right now we're just talking about sex. That just means our biological status as male and female. Gender, on the other hand, refers to the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male and female. In our culture, we make a distinction between sex, between biological sex and gender. And for the sake of these conversations, we're going to assume the same distinction. 
But right now, we're just talking about sex, biological sex, and the only reason we're bringing it up is simply to highlight the fact that one of the big aspects of being created in the image of God involves our bodies, our physical embodiedness in this world. That's the, bit, that's the only point right now. But also, being created in the image of God involves what we could call our souls. So, for instance, if we look at Genesis 2, it goes on to say, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. That's talking about our physical embodied nature in this world. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The picture here is of God coming up so close that he could kiss us and breathing life, his life into us. God doesn't just create us with bodies. God creates us with a spirit, his spirit of life. Friends, here's what all of this means for us. Remember those two big stories we were talking about in the introduction. One story says that the body is all there is. And, and there is no soul, no God, no spiritual reality. The body is all there is. But the other big story says that, um, that we have both a body and a soul. And that um, our bodies are temporary and therefore less important. But our soul is eternal and therefore has ultimate importance. But here's the thing. When we talk like this, what we're doing is we're setting up a dichotomy between the body and the soul. And the Bible shows us that this is a false dichotomy. One helpful way of understanding this comes from a Christian philosopher and uh, writer named Christopher Watkin. Uh, You know, our society is full of dichotomies, right? Things like conservative versus progressive, or science versus faith, or free will versus fate, or Marvel versus DC, or whatever it might be. But Christopher Walken points out that the Bible looks at all these dichotomies in the world and oftentimes it will disrupt or subvert the dichotomies that we make. He calls this diagonalization. Diagonalization, I know that's fancy, what does that mean? Diagonalization means that instead of forcing us to choose between one of two um, positions or instead of settling for a halfway point in between the two things, diagonalization means that the Bible cuts across or diagonalizes things that that we've separated. In other words, it takes things that we've separated in our world and it reunifies them back into a unified whole. So with regard to the body and the soul, our culture has made a dichotomy out of these two things. But when the Bible says that we're created in the image of God, body and soul, it diagonalizes them. In other words, instead of saying that we have a body and we have a soul in the same way that we might say a car has an engine and has a gas tank, as if they're two separate components in a larger whole, instead the Bible says that we are embodied souls or ensouled bodies, however you want to think about it, but it's a unity. And listen, that doesn't mean that we can't talk about our bodies and our souls as distinct realities? Of course we can. We're doing that right now. As long as we remember that at a functional level, body and soul, we are a body-soul unity as human beings. And so we need to keep those realities um, in front of our minds because we can never tear apart the body and soul. We can never separate those two things. 
In fact, uh, one of the fascinating things to me is how modern science, and especially neurology, is actually increasingly recognizing the same thing the Bible has already been saying for thousands of years, um, that we are a body-soul unity. In other words, there are all these unseen, immaterial realities about our lives, our thoughts, feelings, emotions, consciousness, and, and neurology recognizes that all of that stuff is inextricably woven throughout our bodies. We can never pull our bodies and our souls apart. In fact, one of the most powerful examples to me of this is a book called The Body Keeps the Score by uh, Dr. Vessel, Bessel van der Kolk. Uh, the Body Keeps the Score, the, this book um, is all about the reality that trauma literally hardwires itself into our bodies. That trauma programs stories into our bodies, stories that shape the way we live, oftentimes without us even being aware of it. These stories might tell us you're not safe, you're not good, or you're not loved. But whatever the story is, that story doesn't just live in our minds. It lives in our bodies. We can never separate our body and our soul. In fact, there's a wonderful Catholic theologian named Christopher West. We'll talk more about him in weeks to come. But in one of his books, he says this. He says, you know there's a fancy theological word for the separation of body and soul? Perhaps you've heard of it. What is the word? Death. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen the nature of the body. We are embodied souls created in the image of God. But second... The problem of the body. What is the problem of the body? Well, remember, God created this world to be a place where everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. Every need, every desire in our lives was fulfilled. So if we go back to Genesis 2, it tells us, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. We had everything we needed. There was only one condition. God continued by saying, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And if you're familiar with the story, you may know that the first humans did eat of that tree. And not only was that an act of supreme rebellion, even more than that, it was a tragic breakdown in their relationship with God. And the result was breakdown in their lives and in the rest of the world. Because what did God say would happen when they eat from the tree? Death. What is death? Death is the inevitable result of a process where everything is falling apart and decaying. So for instance, we included a passage this morning from Romans 8. Uh, Paul, the apostle, is talking about this promise that one day creation itself, the material world, will be set free from its bondage to corruption. The material world will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That word corruption is a word that literally means to rot or to decay. Paul is telling us that we live in a world that is filled with death. The, the, the world is filled with death. This world is a place where everything is falling apart. Friends, the problem of the body is, is death. It, it's not the way it's supposed to be. It, the Bible is telling us that death is an intruder. Death is an enemy. It's not the way it's supposed to be. I uh, was talking to a friend a couple of years ago. Uh, it was right before Easter. We'll call her Margie. Uh, and Margie became a widow 
a few years ago, and as we were talking, she was telling me about that experience, and she said, you know, it's all about making friends with death. And she said it so confidently that I wasn't sure how to respond right away. But I paused for a bit, and then I said, well, Margie, you know I'm a Christian minister, and this Sunday is Easter. Easter is all about a man who refused to make friends with death. And she said, hmm, I'm not sure what you mean. I'll have to think about that. And I said, if you have a Bible, read John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is probably the most vivid picture of what Jesus thinks about death. In the story, Jesus walks up to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who's been dead for four days. And even though Jesus knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and that in about five minutes, everybody who's weeping there is going to be jumping for joy. Nevertheless, Jesus does not scold the people who are weeping. Jesus breaks down weeping with them. And even more than that, when Jesus walks up to the tomb, most translations say something like he was deeply moved or he was greatly disturbed. But the word it uses actually literally means something much closer to snorting with rage. Jesus is Curious. Have you ever been so angry that you just shook? That's Jesus at the tomb. Jesus will not make friends with death because death, the falling apartness of our bodies and of our world, is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, here's why this is so important for us. If we could um, go back to those two stories we were talking about just a little bit ago. Remember that, that, that we often have a tendency to think that the body is the only reality or that the body is just temporary. But we, It's very difficult for us in our culture because of those two stories to recognize the embodied soul nature of our being created in the image of God. And that means that as a culture, especially as a modern scientific society, it's very difficult for us to really grapple with the challenge of how should we respond to the not-the-way-it's-supposed-to-be-ness of this world we live in, especially our bodies. So, for instance, you know, do we accept things the way they are? Or do we try to change things, especially because more and more we have all these scientific technological capacities and abilities to manipulate our bodies? What do we do with that technology? For instance, I, I think most people would say that heart failure is not the way things are supposed to be. And therefore, if we can add years to someone's life by doing heart surgery, most of us would say, well, that's a good thing. That's, that's a pretty easy example. But the questions quickly start getting much more complicated. For instance, what about cosmetic surgery? Is there a difference between cosmetic surgery for a burn victim or somebody who wants calf implants? Or what about cochlear implants for deaf people? There's actually a huge debate about this in the deaf community right now. I want to encourage us to resist quick and easy answers. And again, slow down, create space for the complexity. We need to wrestle with the not the way it's supposed to be-ness of our world and especially our bodies. But I also want to flag the reality of one of our culture's biggest faith assumptions. It's called the narrative of authenticity. The authenticity narrative says that your inner feelings are the real you. It says that your inner desires and impulses are your true, authentic self. And anything, anything that stands in the way of you constructing and expressing your true, authentic self is an obstacle to be overcome, oftentimes including our bodies. 
So as we enter into these conversations more deeply, as we go along, two things, big things I want to encourage us to do. Number one, we need to acknowledge the not the way it's supposed to be-ness of the world we live in, especially our bodies. And that's challenging for us because sometimes it's easy and obvious. We can look at things in this world and we can say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. But there are a lot of other things in our world um, that are not the way it's supposed to be, but we minimize them, or we normalize them, or we deny them. And so one of the big challenges for us is to keep the not the way it's supposed to be-ness of the world on our radar. The other big challenge for us is we need to be aware of just how powerful the authenticity narrative is in our culture. This narrative is like a river, (laughs) a powerful river, that is carrying us along in its current. We can say, hey, remember that the body matters. But that that belief is like a ping-pong ball. It's like taking a ping-pong ball and throwing it in the river. The ping-pong ball of our belief is almost powerless to resist the pull of the cultural river that we're being carried along by, a river and a cultural narrative that tells us that, that our bodies are less important and that our inner impulses and desires are the most important reality and that we should be able to do whatever we want with our bodies in the service of our true authentic self. Friends, we live in the midst of a world where there's breakdown between our souls and our bodies. And we also live in the midst of a world that is in many ways reinforcing that breakdown. What do we do with all of that? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen the nature of the body. We are embodied souls created in the image of God. Second, we've seen the problem of the body, death. (laughs) The world is falling apart. Our bodies are falling apart. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But lastly, we need to look at the redemption of the body. And I want to come back one last time to those two big stories that we were talking about at the beginning. Remember, one story says the body is all there is. The other story says that, um, that our body is temporary and that one day we are going to escape our body into a purely spiritual existence. Those are two of the biggest stories. And listen, people believe different things about the body, but I would still suggest that most of us in our culture are somewhere along the spectrum between these two things. But here's, here's the big thing. Um, the lives we live in this world reflect the story we believe about this world. The lives we live in this world always reflect the story we believe about this world. Or we could say it like this. You know, in a movie, the script tells the characters how to act. Every single one of us has a script that tells us how to act. But here's the thing. Every script presupposes a story. So if the story is a romantic comedy, then people act a certain way because that's a certain kind of story. But if the story is a a superhero movie, then people act a different way because that's a very different kind of story. That's why Batman will always look very silly in Notting Hill and why Hugh Grant um, doesn't belong in Wakanda even though Hugh Grant will always look really good no matter where he is. But those scripts don't match those stories. Does that make sense? Friends, here's the question. What do we do when the scripts of how we live don't match the stories we say we believe? For instance, we were talking about this last week. If you have a story that says there is no God and this world is all there is, and yet your script says that we should be clinging to things like human rights and individual personal dignity, then regardless of what we say our story is, 
our script is pointing to a much different story that says we are more than a bag of chemicals. Or if you have a story that says our material world and our material bodies are temporary, and yet your script has you weeping when a loved one dies, or angry when someone is gunned down in a mass shooting, then regardless of what story we say we believe about the world, our script is pointing to a different story that says that that ultimately life is more than a disembodied spiritual liberation. Friends, when our scripts, the way we live, don't match our stories, what we say we believe, then we have two choices. Either we can change our script or we can change our story. I want to encourage us this morning that, that if we have a script that says that we should embrace human rights, weep when a loved one dies, and get angry when someone gets killed, that script, regardless of what we say we believe about the world, that script is pointing us to the biblical story that says we are embodied souls created in the image of God, but we live in a world where things are falling apart, and yet everything inside of us is crying out for all things to be put back together again. In other words, we're crying out for redemption. Redemption simply means to recover something that was lost or to win back something that was taken. Um, Every single one of us is crying out for redemption. In other words, the story that our hearts are longing for is the story that the Bible tells on every page. So if we went back to Romans 8, Paul tells us the whole creation has been groaning. He's saying that this material world is crying out for redemption. But then he goes on to say, And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption. Friends, all of us are crying out for redemption, aren't you? Isn't there an ache in your souls? A a longing in your heart for something we've never actually experienced in this world, and yet we can't stop looking for it? We're all crying out for redemption. But here's the billion-dollar question. Redemption of what? Paul says the redemption of our bodies. Friends, how does that happen? Here's the really amazing thing about the gospel. Remember, if if the body is temporary, and what really matters is, is being liberated from our bodies into a purely spiritual existence, then redemption looks like human beings escaping material reality. For instance, Eastern religions talk about escaping the karmic cycle. Western religions talk about going to heaven. In either case, it's all, redemption is all about human beings escaping material reality. But the gospel is the exact opposite of that. Because the gospel says that redemption is not humans escaping material reality, but God entering material reality. Friends, in other words, when God decided to save us, he did not sit up on the throne of heaven and said, let's send them thoughts and prayers. God got his hands in the dirt, literally, because Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, physically, materially entered this material world. He took a material body, and he redeemed our material bodies by giving his body in the most horrifying, degrading, shameful, and excruciating form of execution human beings have ever imagined. Because real nails were pounded into real hands and real feet. His hands and feet would have felt like they were on fire. There were huge ribbons of flesh opened up on his back. 
where Roman whips would have exposed all of his nerve endings so that the cross, the real wood of the cross, would have been like a cheese grater on his back. Jesus Christ did not save us with a spiritual-only salvation. He saved us with a physical salvation, with real nails, real wood, real blood, a real crown of thorns, and friends, real groans. Because on the cross, Jesus groaned so that we could be set free from all our groaning in the body and in the world. Because when Jesus died on the cross, it was the death of death. It was the breakdown of all the breakdown. And when Jesus rose from the dead, physically, with a body, rose from the dead, then death itself, as C.S. Lewis said, started working backwards. And one day when Jesus comes again, everything that's falling apart will be made new. That's the promise of the Bible. That's the promise of the gospel. So if you're here this morning and maybe you're exploring faith, I want to um, continue to press you with the challenge that I offered you last week. But I'll say it like this. Does your story match your script? If you have a script that says that we should embrace human rights, that we should weep when a loved one dies, that we should rage against material injustice in this world, and we should do all of those things. But if that's what your script is telling you, then why not embrace the story that makes best sense of that script? I'm not saying that other stories can't um, give some account of that script. I'm asking you to consider which story makes best sense. Have you ever really investigated the story of the gospel? And I mean really investigated it. The real story of the gospel, not some straw man or a simplistic reduction which our culture so obdurately clings to. No. Have you ever really investigated the story of the gospel? One easy way to do that is to pick up one of the gospels and just start reading it. But for those of us here this morning who are Christians, listen, one of the main reasons that our world rejects the biblical story is because so often it looks at us, the church, and it can see that our scripts don't match our story. One of the main ways that we press the story of the gospel more deeply into our lives is through what we do with our bodies. Friends, when we physically pray, when we physically read the Bible or memorize scripture, when we physically come to worship, not virtual online, as helpful as that is. You know what virtual means? Less than real. Not when we physically come to worship and physically sing with our voices, Especially songs that sing about the lament of how this world is not the way it's supposed to be. When we physically serve our neighbors, when we, when we physically offer our bodies to God in his service, rejecting our inner impulses and desires that are destructive, and actually offering our bodies to God, as Romans 12 says, then what we're doing is we're, those are, all those are different ways of hardwiring and rooting the story of the gospel more deeply in our lives through what we do with our bodies. Friends, the lives we live in this world always reflect the story we believe about this world. And the gospel is the only story that says redemption is not humans escaping material reality, but God entering material reality. Which story are you living today? Whatever story it is, you're living it in your body. Why not embrace the story, the only story that offers you redemption, the redemption you're longing for, the redemption of our bodies. Would you pray with me? Abba, we thank you this morning 
that you answer the deepest longings and desires of our heart. You created us with longings and desires. You created a world where all of those things were fulfilled. And tragically, Lord, we, uh, we rebelled against you. We wanted to be the authors of our own story. But we thank you that you did not stay far away and removed from us, but you entered into our material reality, the material reality you created in order to redeem us by taking on that material reality and redeeming all of it for us. So, Father, we pray this morning as we um, continue through this series, we ask that you would help us to really wrestle with all the ways that this world is not supposed to be and that you would also help us to be consistently aware of the various cultural narratives that... um, that in many ways are good, but in many other ways uh, subvert what your, um, what your story is telling us. Father, we pray that you would help us to, to really examine the scripts and the stories in our lives. And as best we can, Father, to bring our scripts and our stories into alignment. And especially by embracing the story, the only story that makes sense of the scripts that you have already hardwired into our lives. The scripts that tells the story of your redemption. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.